Hello and welcome everybody to the Beyond Autism podcast series. Today we're lucky enough to be speaking to Sarah Lana, who's a BCBA at Beyond Autism and works in our early year service. Hi Sarah. Hi Andy. How's it going today? Yeah, good, thank you. How about you? Not so bad. Absolutely freezing for people. Like this marking time, January 2023, is the coldest it's been I can remember in any case. Right, so really interesting talk for, for, from you today not to sort of set you up too much but genuinely the service is super interesting if i just operate uh, give a little bit of context and correct me if i get any of this wrong so essentially you guys uh, run an early year service yeah uh, and it's been going for about five years is that right yeah so there were some pilot services and then the um the permanent service started in september 2018 so yeah right. five years yeah. this year okay awesome all right, so I know a bit about the service, obviously, but I, I just wanted to kind of set this up for the listener, essentially. Can you just broadly, because we're going to go into more detail, um, what is Early Years as a service? So Early Years is a free service that families attend. So parents attend with their children who are typically aged between 15 months and five years of age. Everything is underpinned by behaviour analysis, but we're working directly with the family. So we're working with the parent, kind of guiding, modelling and putting in a an individualised um, set of targets that the parent can be working towards with the child. Most of it is kind of classroom based. And then every session, the parents also take part in a parent discussion session with myself where we'll pick a different topic. So we might pick uh, behaviour, we might pick toilet training we might pick communication and we'll just take half an hour out to kind of discuss that within a kind of a training environment yeah and and you mentioned the parents there so i i uh from from the model it sounds as though there's a a real um emphasis on sort of family resilience and kind of going on the journey together yeah definitely in some ways kind of the parents are are almost more important in the model than the children um, so we're working directly with the parents giving them you know the tools and the knowledge to kind of navigate whatever is coming up in in their lives currently um, but also giving them that kind of peer support group with other parents and supporting their needs as a family to build that resilience and empower them as parents. Because mm-hmm. I think some of the conversations I know we've had in the past have been whether we like it or not, there tends to be a reaction in in sort of social circles for parents with children who are, are not necessarily diagnosed yet, but certainly aren't really aren't developing in the same way as maybe their, their the parents' friends' peers, and there's that sort of sense of progressing isolation over time where people just seem to sort of disappear from view and aren't there sort of there to support socially for for anybody who's got young children, right? I mean, it's it's not so easy. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the parents when they first start, you know, they do feel quite isolated. They they can't necessarily relate to all the conversations that their friends are having when their friends with typically developing children are talking about their child doing X, Y and Z and and they're just not there yet. And I think for a lot of the parents, it's the first time that they've sat in a room with other parents and they've realised, oh, it's not just me that feels like this. It's not just me that's struggling with this it's not just me that's up in the middle of the night with my child or every meal time's a battle or every outing is really difficult so it's kind of yeah giving them that that peer support group hmm. I know you do a lot of the, well I think you do almost all the parent training don't you 
Yeah, so um, our specialist teacher does some, um, but mostly mostly myself that does the the parent sessions. Okay, so I mean, I appreciate we're doing this for for from a task list perspective, and we've talked a lot about. It's interesting listening to to you talk about it actually, because you, know, you talked about the topics of training, and, and the first thing you said was, "Oh, oh, we do, we do behaviour." Now, you know, you might. I think all behaviour analysts are kind of triggered at that point. And they're like, oh, as soon as I that? said that, I realised I shouldn't <laughs> yeah. have said that. I mean, but, but, but genuinely, like, I understand because it, it's this is the communi- the, the communication piece isn't it like you have to kind of translate ultimately the things that we are thinking about and concerned around and helping parents understand and contextually that word means something doesn't it I mean it's uh it's just interesting to me that one has to I think the real sophistication is taking something like the task of taking something like the, the 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 central tenets of what it is that we do and then making them understandable I think it's it's super important and on that you, you mentioned this um the free aspects and of course the service itself is comes is funded if you like from voluntary fundraising and it but it is free to the, at the point of contact for, for parents right they come in they, they don't have to pay any money and i think it it probably speaks to why it's possibly so popular perhaps i, I don't know um over, over the five years uh it's, it's around 70 71 72 families you've seen right so I think that was just last year alone um I don't have the figures to hand but I'd say it's probably around 50 to 70 families per year so well into the the couple of hundreds um basically we offer kind of families um at the moment we offer them two terms for free and then we can extend to a third term if if they still need that support and then because we're trying to focus on the parents and equipping them with the skills actually we find at that point obviously you know their their children are going to have ongoing needs but the parents are equipped with the knowledge to kind of handle those situations or they've started to move into school or they've started to move into other networks of support that can kind of help them yeah and then the um as as a kind of i just want to move us on now to to the nature of it so so the I hate them using the word strapline, but I, I guess this is what it is, right? It's engage, communicate, and play. Yeah. Which has been, I think, since the pilot, the, the kind of what we talk about it being, if you like. Obviously, you've, you've discussed some of the detail of what it actually looks like, but ultimately, what we're trying to do is, is answer this question of for children that have no access to any other funding because they're non statutory school age haven't necessarily had or begun their journey for assessment towards diagnosis. There really isn't much out there that would speak to the specific issues. I mean, other than, you know, um, reflecting on child development being quite an atypical pathway anyway, it becomes clear at a certain point that it's really particularly not working. So engaged communicating play is is in place, uh, presumably for to kind of emphasize the relationship between parents and children yeah absolutely so I mean it's all play-based it's all kind of focusing on that natural environment teaching and and trying to give parents tools that are realistic to do in their day-to-day life it's not going to be kind of a traditional clinic style program because that's not what parents are going to be able to do at home and it's about giving them the strategies and the tools to promote communication in in multiple situations across the day and to 
feel confident taking their child out to the park and know how to promote those play skills and those social skills and things like that and yeah I think what you said in terms of kind of accessing other services that are similar a lot of the families that come here this is kind of their only support at that moment in time because waiting lists for diagnosis at the moment are I think over half of parents are waiting 18 months or longer um, honestly we, we looked into this recently for a different thing um just for for knowledge and it was, it was to inform a piece of communication but i found a, a reference from the nhs and the, the stats from i think it's july 21 to june 22. so, so contextually the advice is uh, children should be sort of seen and diagnosed if you like within three months like that that's kind of the standard that's yeah. been set i think by the british medical association i think um, either way, it is it is there. Is a stat here of thirteen weeks, so I guess that's roughly yeah, the same. And I think you've mentioned that before. <laughs> on those figures, on, on in that time alone, only seven point four percent of people are achieving that. And I think the numbers are like are crazy. Like there's currently one hundred twenty thousand open referrals. So, I mean, as you point out, the, the pathway to diagnosis is, is long and yet clearly all evidence points towards early intervention being effective, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure as behaviour analysts we can quote loads and loads of literature and research that points towards early intervention, but not just within this field, within other fields, speech right. and language therapy, occupational therapy, everything points towards early intervention is having the most benefit. Um, well, yeah, and you know, like the, the, there was a piece recently, wasn't there? It's been, uh, I think it was uh, published by the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists that were talking about uh, the effect on language development for the, for COVID children, so those that were kind yeah. of in the early stage development. So it's not even about um, early intervention, because I think that phrase kind of puts some people's backs up in some regard. Um, we know what it means, but it, it's the early development stages that are so important. So children that are not autistic but haven't had that contact with social environments because of the pandemic that there's a, a real lag in in speech development and uh, socialization yeah definitely so, so and it, i mean a lot of the families we're having now have been that age during the covid pandemic but also have autism so they've kind right. of got the the double whammy so even more need to have have this this type of service okay great contextually that's great and i kind of wish the listeners could see the service because it's it's a really fun place to be and you guys have set it up in such a great way that it it it, it you know mimics for for one of it whatever the way it is its own entity um other environments that people might find themselves in which i think is perfect so you mentioned earlier about it not being a clinic setting it's, it's definitely not but i think that probably brings to the fore the things that we've discussed and and you've done lots of work on it is in around how do you know it's effective and of course what we're really talking to is measurement of interventions and you know how we make what you do behavioral uh, in the sense of understanding your start point and what you did and what difference it made and how you make decisions which speaks to assessment right so kind of throwing you straight in but like genuinely tell us the assessment story because it's, it's long it's a long it's a long journey to get to where you got to to help you guys make all the decisions that you need yes yeah, so i mean 
obviously it's a very unique model as we've kind of discussed and therefore the kind of traditional assessment tools that that you'll often see within behavior analysis or you'll often see within early years it wasn't quite fitting when the the pilot the first pilot happened it was the early start demo model that was being used as the assessment tool um, and that worked great for for the model at the time because I think it was four professionals and four families in the first pilot so it was a you know a really great <laughs> great ratio that I would love to have but obviously isn't a feasible ratio. And to add in the pilot I think it's worth people knowing that when you say four professionals it wasn't just it wasn't just one-to-one in the sense of um like a, a TA role or a tutor role you had fully qualified speech and language therapist BCBA a qualified teacher and a speech and language teaching and what's the fourth professional forget forget their role I think there were three behavior analysts and one speech and language therapist in the first pilot and then in the second and third there were slightly different um members oh, okay. of staff that were involved but yeah very but qualified fully, people fully, to be working yeah, directly okay. with them <laughs> fine good carry on so yeah the early start demo model was used in in the pilot and that worked great for those of you who aren't familiar with the early start Denver model it's you know it's not the longest assessment in the world but I think there's I've got here 456 skills of different things to look at and it obviously breaks it down into different areas and it's designed for children it's designed for preschool children so it's perfect for the age group but what I found when I kind of took over the permanent service was actually it wasn't feasible for kind of um, for us in the current situation. So obviously the first pilot, we just talked about the ratios. Currently we have um, myself in the service, we have a specialist teacher, and then we have three early years family practitioners um, who are essentially trained as ABA tutors um, and they work with two families each per session. So across the week, they might work with seven or eight different families because some families come for one session a week, which is a half day. Some families come for two sessions a week. So working with that many different families across three days and working with that many families at a time, it wasn't feasible to kind of run the, the whole Early Start Denver model. Um, and actually, just to add to that, I think... I remember us looking into it a bit more like to be to be an early start Denver model practitioner which may be the wrong phrase it is an intense training and the skill sets let alone I mean I'm not sure you or I could do it to the extent that they expect for that to be a pure representation of the model as they designed it so it's really about finding what things we could use or you could use sorry to identify baseline to progress yeah absolutely so yeah we decided we weren't going to use the early start Denver model anymore we started looking into different assessment tools that we're familiar with and that are often used within the field and one of the ones that is very common and is again made for design for children of this age group is the VB map so the verbal behavior milestones assessment and placement program which I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with um the VB map is obviously great in terms of it splits it down into the three levels. Um, so for staff and for parents, you can clearly see where the child is at. 
it breaks it down into the different verbal operants. So obviously you can look at manding, you can look at their receptive skills repertoire, you can look at their um, ability to tax, their ability to imitate. All of these things are really clearly broken down. And you can clearly see the progress. So you've got that visual representation in between each assessment. You can see that that child has gain skills within manding or they've gained skills within their echoic repertoire and you can visualize that and you know it's got lots and lots of positives however if you run the full vbmap assessment there are around 950 skills um obviously it will depend on on the level of the learner um a child working within level one vbmap it's going to be quicker to to undertake the assessment but what we kind of wanted to to get away from is actually we don't want to spend the first few sessions completing the assessment we don't want to spend five six sessions and actually by the time we've got to half term all we've done is assess that child we thought about using just the milestones so obviously the the verbal the vbmap milestones is one of the you know most commonly used assessments within that but then we're missing things like the barriers. We're missing things that we can get from the transitions. And actually, a lot of the stuff that we have found we're working on in early years are those barriers. You know, we're teaching a lot of children to tolerate transitions, to tolerate being told no, to be able to wait for things that they like. And by using just the VBMAP milestones, we weren't really able to see that representation. So we ruled out the VBMAP. So the next assessment tool we looked at was the ABLES R. So um, the assessment of basic language and learning skills. And again, it's set up very similarly to the VBMAP in terms of we've got the breakdown into the different areas. We've got, you know, manding, we've got receptive language. We've also got things in there like self-help skills, which is great. However, again, it's a big assessment so there's 544 skills in the ables and again and think, it doesn't sorry and i think that there's, there's something about fluency isn't there because i mean over the years it, it just been for years so I, I i remember i can't do it anymore <laughs> but i used to remember kind of i think s was writing and s10 was something in particular and like the yeah. first little square of that was something and, and i could just remember it and not that that helped because obviously you still would have to do the thing, but it just meant it was just super fluent. So you got faster. And it's the same with the VB map. Like if you do a lot of those, depending on how stringently you follow the assessment criteria of, you know, this needs to be timed, this needs to be observed, this needs to, which I'd, I think it, truthfully, I'm not sure how many people do that to the extent of which it was designed anyway. So I think again, it becomes down to fluency. So I, I totally get it. So you've gone, Early start demo model was probably too specialist in its execution, and it was how many skills you said it was. It was I forget it's oh, it's loads. <laughs> there you go. I knew you'd know. Was that about fluency? <laughs> uh, the VB map again, it, it big. Able's big and interesting. You know, the point that you made, which I thought was really uh, key, you seem to be operating broadly in six week blocks, which might repeat. Yeah. So you got one, two, or three six week blocks. But if, as you said, like if you spend, if you're seeing somebody half a day a week, you're going to spend every half at least of that half day, so a quarter of a day, just sort of building rapport and getting in a space where you can actually get an effective baseline. So having gone through early start Dev model, ESDM, BBMAP, ABLES, 
genuinely like thought this is the sort of thing that might start driving a behavior analyst mad like what was your next step next so, assessment <laughs> my next step was to kind of think about well what do we want from an assessment because we've got all these tools that are there and they're utilized and they obviously have their time and their place and they can show all this progress but actually what are the skills that we're working on with with the families and a lot of them are those really functional those functional skills so um being able to tolerate different situations or communication is obviously super key um play skills as well but we'll come to that in a second because that's slightly separate and actually the essential for living so the efl that's what it's focusing on it's focusing on the essential the skills that are functional and the skills that are essential for living and obviously the difference with the efl is it's it's not designed for young children it's not designed to kind of um be specifically for this age group it's for you know all ages it's for adults with developmental disabilities it's for lots of different cohorts of of people but what's great about it is that it functions it focuses on those really really functional skills yeah, because they use the terminology of functional and developmental, don't they? <clears throat> yeah. Which is tricky as a kind of lost in translation piece, because I think we would talk about developmental as from the point of development, i.e. you could be anywhere in your development and have that type of curriculum, whereas they go functional and developmental, are being functional, being ad adapted, I think, is this way around, and developmental is going to be typically developing curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder whether it's interesting you talk about essential for living. I, I, uh, I'd like to ask Troy and Pat about whether or not. I think they would really love that. Yeah. The fact that the other stuff, it, I, my reflections, which is apropos of just my opinion, is just VBMAP and ABLES tend to look. Uh, well, no, I'm going to say something really unfair. It, it. It doesn't seem to necessarily have this. Did they have the same ethos as EFL, perhaps? Or is EFL kind of thinking, as you rightly pointed out, like is it, this is essential stuff, which yeah. which goes on. And I think what you're going to talk about next is an interesting byproduct of that principle, maybe. Yeah, and I think I mean obviously the VB map incorporates it within the barriers assessment yeah. and within the transitions assessment. However, you need to run the full. The full assessment in order to access those separate parts of it whereas the right. efl focuses on it specifically um what we did find though is obviously for those of you who know the efl it's a big big chunky old book and i think there's around three thousand different skills in the full efl assessment so what we actually are now using is the efl quick assessment which was never designed to be a kind of standalone assessment tool. It's, I think it was designed to be kind of a quick assessment tool that can, you know, really quickly gauge where someone's at in terms of that initial assessment to then do the full assessment. Um, but we are using it as the full assessment because where we have, you know, the children for such limited time, but also within that time, there are six children that I need to be able to be with all at the same time. When we first started, that was actually eight. 
So even though the children are there for two and a half hours and they have their practitioner working with them for half of that time, actually my time within two and a half hours is split six ways or split eight ways. So actually to complete those assessments would, would just take far, far too long. So um, the EFL quick assessment, that's what it says on the tin. It's quick <laughs> and it's great. And it gives that visual analysis that we can then clearly see, okay, that child, you know, that child didn't have any spoken words and now they're filling out two boxes out of four or that child wasn't able to tolerate being told no however now they're able to tolerate it apart from those really highly preferred reinforcers so it it gives us that visual analysis that we love in behavior analysis we love that visual analysis but we can see that parents can see that other professionals can see that and um yeah it allows us to kind of focus on those things that we're working on anyway i suppose in a way then that that then answers the issue of we've got to start working fast so yeah. this child's got to start accessing contingencies quick otherwise they're just going to be have the same problems with you as they do elsewhere and actually it's probably going to be more stressful for that child so you, you're, you're going to have why is my mum here why are they trying to make me do i mean i'm, I'm this is all conjecture obviously but it's just you've got another environmental thing you just don't know about the effects on the mo you don't know what the how it's going to change the contingencies or what's going to be reinforcing and what's going to be negatively reinforcing or what have you so yeah you had you had to do it and I, and I think not that this matters really but it's also incumbent on the service is that you have to prove because somebody is essentially funding it on a voluntary basis you you have to demonstrate progress right so you yeah. can't just come along have a nice time and you know see you later it's we've got to actually demonstrate for different reasons like we've got the person centerpiece obviously we've got the family unit of course but then for you to exist there's also a genuine context of the funding mechanism so you have to be able to demonstrate the progress so this journey and I suppose it's quite brave in some senses like you, you know you're trying to take a 950 skill baby map a 450 odd ESDM skill set you're trying to find 540 odd able skills and distill them down to the <laughs> to the most um salient points which I mean it can't be easy but that process can't have been easy yeah and I mean I thought about taking this part from this assessment or this part but what you then lose is you lose that visual analysis which is so important um, and obviously there's there's downsides I mean the EFL assessment is you know it's quite subjective we're essentially trying to fit everyone into four boxes um, and it does mm. take mm. a bit of staff training and it takes that inter-observer agreements and looking at those to make sure that we're all assessing the same things it's not perfect by any means but but when you have such limited resources and it's a free service families aren't paying we have to kind of work quickly, as you said. Actually, it's enabled us to be able to show to show that progress in a meaningful way. However, the thing that was missing from the EFL is play skills and social skills, which if you look at any early years curriculum, if you look at um, the early years foundation stage, if you look at early years curriculums across the world, it's all about play. And I mean, you said it before, engage communicate and play those that's kind of our our buzzwords so 
we really had to find something that could incorporate play. Yeah, because I, I don't know. I mean, it feels like it should be a research project in of itself, but it might even it might even be more sociological than behavioural necessarily. But it, I would I would be very interested to understand the figures around autistic or suspected suspected autistic children. Um, what is how are they included in in play? And you do wonder. Yeah. I mean, in in sort of behavioural terms, we talk about motivation, we talk about parents, we talk about all those types of things so it, it it's it's interesting to me that I, I really want to find a more solid way of demonstrating via kind of evidence of research and so on this idea that are we simply just giving access to what a child almost has a right or a need for much earlier on than they would ordinarily get it because of all the other different barriers that exist around them to accessing that stuff and, and now you know I, I mean, I, I get quite surprised by how much progress can be made in such a very short space of time. So and I, I, it's really worth the listeners understanding how you've got to incorporate play into the assessment. Yeah, so I mean, play, it's, it's one of those things that is quite hard to kind of um, operationally define in terms of play is a big topic. And actually, when you start to break it down, you realise how many different skills are involved, like things that typically developing children pick up so, so easily. Actually, for a lot of the children with autism, lots of the children that come to our setting, we need to break it down. And, you know, the VB map has play within it. So I think it has independent play and then it has social skills. Um, but as we weren't doing the full VB map assessment, it didn't make sense to kind of just him like, just pick those little bits out of it to do. What we then kind of did is we looked into other kind of other realms of thoughts. So kind of more developmental literature and um, thinking more kind of how speech and language therapists might break down play or how early as practitioners might break down play and what other people are doing in order to kind of ha try and operationally define play. Um, because as we said, it's big and it's complicated. Um, but well, so it's, oper operationally defined fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but, but, but it, it does all kind of loop back to behaviour analysis. I mean, it might be a bit, I mean, this is how my brain works. Anyway, it's a, you, you're just really trying to understand again motivation for the individual, aren't you? Like what 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 is in play, no pun intended, What what is in place to mean that play is fun for that child? Exactly. And I think, I mean, the updated EFL, which I'm actually not too familiar with, it now includes leisure in the, I think it's gone from the essential eight to the necessary nine. And, necessary it nine. and isn't it interesting that that's in the nine? Yeah. Because if you look at the essential eight, as was, where you've got making requests, waiting, exception removals, making transitions, etc. I'm reading this, by the way, guys, I, I'm not uh, that, let me talk about fluency earlier. I'm not there. Accepting no, following directions, clean daily health and tolerating. And the fact that they've put leisure in there, I think is really, really interesting. And, and I actually haven't seen it either yet. I think there feels like in, in schooling anyway, there's a lot of emphasis of control of children anyway, in, for yeah. any child, like follow the rules, you'll be good. Follow the rules, do your learning, play when we say, etc. And so, of course, the children that we are most familiar with often that, that social construct, that social kind of norm is is irrelevant and so 
I think to a certain degree, some of the things that we understand to be assessments and therefore actually our curriculums speak to that because that's kind of, I suppose, the applied piece, the socially significant aspect. In the context of EFL, when you're looking at actually because it goes down two distinct pathways, I think it helps you guide through the process. But the fact that they've built in leisure in, as a ninth essential or necessary skill, I think is is, is a really great idea. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, obviously, where the EFL is more geared towards adults, it absolutely makes sense that they need to be able to occupy their time. And then the equivalent with children is that play. They need to be able to to occupy their time with meaningful activities. And we know that play helps develop communication. Play and communication are so massively linked. Play helps develop, you know, their personality it helps develop their interests and their independent skills and even things like fine fine motor skills and there's so many things that happen through play again language that all ties into it as well so what we did come across is that often play and social stages are kind of separated and then they are broken down accordingly and I think social stages there's a piece by Parton back in I think it's 1932 or a, a very long time ago that gets <laughs> recreated <laughs> I love that reference I'm not sure how you put that in. you're right it is 32 yeah I've not got it in front of me I have somewhere but it's not here but yeah yeah Parton 1932 so for 90 odd years people have typically been agreeing that the stages of social skills are unoccupied play followed by solitary play followed by spectator or onlooker play, then parallel play, then associate play, and then cooperative play. And, 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 that's, and crucially, that, that ties in with developmental stages, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's cited numerous times across numerous different kind of books and literature, and it's generally quite agreed on. But the stages of play, when I was researching that, everyone has their own kind of train of thought and right, some so you, people, what you just talked about was social skills and they're distinctly different from play skills right interesting yeah so obviously there's an interlink but you can have play skills by yourself whereas social skills you typically need another person there but right. the better your play skills are the better your social skills are going to be able to become because you've got different ways of playing that you can build into different social situations so it and, all and interlinks all, together right and all of a sudden what you were saying about our play is really big that that to me that that last description there just totally i can entirely see what you mean um because there's so many different contingencies and, inter, and interaction interverbals man's tax all, all the things that would constitute this component skills of Play, I suppose, but what we're what you're then trying to do is almost take the quickly take the component, the larger components of a cusp, and figure it out in six weeks. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Okay, go on. Sorry, I, I kind of took you off track because I all of a sudden no. it really hit home about the size of it all. So now you're in play, and it's around. So different. Different people have different schools of thought as to how play should be broken down. And it was hard for me to find something that was as solid as Parton's analysis. 
some practitioners break it down into three stages, some more. I think the one that we've used that I fell upon using is quoted a lot in Ingersoll and Vortzak. Apologies if that's said incorrectly. Good effort. Um, (laughs) So that is 10 different stages of play. And so that's what I decided to use. And pretty recent as well, 2019, it looks like, yeah? Yeah, so, I mean, they've done a lot of stuff on... um, teaching social communication they have um the project impact which is a manual for parents so interestingly they work a lot about working with the parents and promoting that parent involvement to really promote that child process i've heard that somewhere recently (laughs) so can i just ask you uh, before you go into that for a second it's super interesting that this is not behavioral literature clearly because some of these things are much larger or, or is it? Well, or, or rather, did you find, because you're a behaviour analyst and because you know what you know, could you go into these, this idea of the stages of play and then begin to build that behavioural picture? So interestingly, Ingersoll is a BCBA. So she's a BCBA or D. Um, and then Bortzak is a speech pathologist. So it's oh, kind fair. of uh, multidisciplinary in creating. I mean, probably my unconscious bias was more drawn towards this breakdown because it was created by yeah, yeah, and no, <laughs> now I feel a bit silly because if you st- start looking at it you think actually no I've seen that name before so yeah they they break it down into so we've got 10 different stages I think they might actually have an 11th in their most recent book but what we're using at the moment is 10 stages so it starts with exploratory play which is children exploring their environment building up through combinatorial play which is beginning to combine things together um we've got then cause and effect play functional play before we move on to pretend play and pretend play is split into self-directed other directed symbolic and then complex pretend play and then right at the top we've got imaginary role play and sociodramatic play so there's that breakdown which is all operationally defined and it helps to kind of be able to see and observe okay that's this type of play because we can play with things in different ways you can have you know you can have your your blocks something that's typically found in an earlier classroom and a child might be exploring them and they might just be kind of feeling them and touching them and smelling them or they might start to build towers and that might be the combinatorial play but then you can use that right the way up to, you know, complex pretend play. They can build a house and they can get a doll to come into the house made of bricks. And you can build in so many different components of language. And then obviously you can take that and move it into a social play situation. Um, either parallel play where the children are playing alongside each other. Associate play, which might be demanding to peers asking for something or responding to a man from peers and passing it back right through to cooperative play which is let's build a house together and let's make this and really cooperating for that end goal really clever stuff so then how does that now translate for you guys because you talked about the efl quick assessment you yeah. talked about play so there's two assessments there so now i'm thinking you've basically you've settled on this format for now right you've got the efl quick assessment plus play that you've developed as a as a service yeah so when a new child or a new family comes to the service we typically spend the first two or three sessions um 
completing these assessments, but also talking to the parents, working out what their priorities are, what is the main thing that they want to work on with that child. And nine times out of 10, it's communication. Behaviours that challenge are often up there. Um, Lots of tolerating skills are up there. But there's kind of those common themes. Um, so we'll we'll run the EFL quick assessment and then how we've broken down the play and social skills is obviously these stages of play and stages of social skills weren't designed as a standalone assessment. So what we've kind of done is we've broken it down into have we observed these stages on at least one occasion and what would we say in our professional opinion is their most common stage of play at the moment. So we might see someone who has the first four stages of play and most of their play is combinatorial currently. And then when we reassess, they might have started to pick up the fifth and the sixth and their most common stage of play then might have moved to functional play, for example. So it's kind of we're then able to visually see that picture moving and developing. Are they a building skills within the other stages of play and stages of social skills and b because of those skills is what their typical play looks like changing as well and again yeah. obviously that's very subjective um but we try but and make it as objective that, as possible interestingly you set the occasion don't you because you we talked earlier about maligning the fact that you would have to go through formal assessment using some of the other tools that, that would take up all the first weeks six weeks or maybe lots of sessions or you might not get the continuity but you've got this your mechanism for assessment is also play yeah exactly. so you have you, you're playing from the, the first moment through a door so what you've really done is make make that I, I guess the most familiar thing for other practitioners might be you're just making the pairing phase or stage or baseline or however people you know whatever people, phrase people use for it um into also an assessment that translates into the visual inspections that you use which I've, I've just got a sample in front of me so it's super simple and really easy to see yeah exactly and like you said we're starting with pairing everything is based around play we might as well use that to our advantage and be able to take information that is relevant and is crucial and is important from it so yeah absolutely and quick so quick because it's yeah. pretty much instant yeah exactly it doesn't require kind of setting up situations to test necessarily it's mostly kind of observational and um, or testing with what we have in the classroom so the classroom is set up very similarly to how a nursery or preschool setting might be set up we've got the different areas you know we've got a role play corner we've got a book corner we've got construction area and we've got all of the t the toys that you would typically see children of that age engaging with and it's seeing how they engage with it you're right so because I, I was gonna i was just gonna be devil's advocate because i think if you were to walk into i kind of know the answer to this already but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I feel like if I was listening to this podcast, I want to ask it. If if you were to walk into a good nursery, yeah, you would probably see all the things you just described. Yeah. So why is it different? What What is it about what you guys do that can take a child a baseline, effectively a free up and observation pairing beginning? 
that then goes some way to giving you that first insight into how the child's going to communicate and ask for those things or or, or what other operands exist around that around that play what makes it different what how are you making that progress in just six weeks which may even not be six weeks because you said it yourself if they do three sessions a week that's a day and a half so what's that nine days so yeah. t explain because it, it doesn't sound like it could be possible so i mean the the kind of difference is obviously the early years foundation stage curriculum which is where those different areas etc are based off is designed with typically developing children in mind typically developing children don't necessarily need this strict breakdown of the behaviors within play because they often develop it quite naturally what we then do is we show the parents how we can teach play so how we can kind of pair whether it's pairing up new activities do we need to do some stimulus stimulus pairing in terms of increasing their interests do we need to work on their imitation skills in terms of them being able to copy how to play with different things? Can, do we need to physically prompt or guide or model? How are we going to work with that individual child and that parent to promote those play skills? So actually kind of teaching it as a, a skill to be taught rather than just something to be observed. So yes, we observe it for the assessment, but we then might put on a target that is engaging in combinatorial play and we might pick specific things that we play with and we will break it down and we will show the parent how to teach that and obviously the assessment tool is one side of side of the service but actually all the children that come have individualized targets so they have between three and five individual targets that they're working on every single child has a communication target because obviously that is one of the most important skills um, typically it's manding whether that's sign manding whether that's manding with pecs or vocals ipad applications one words two words sentences whatever's appropriate for that child and then the other the other three four targets are typically kind of created in conjunction with the parents because we want that buy-in from the parents we you know we're not going to change the world on two and a half hours a week but if the parents mm. are doing these things all day every day at home then that's where we see the biggest progress so kind of immersing them in an environment underpinned by the principles of behavior analysis creating those opportunities creating numerous repeated opportunities prompting fading the prompts mm -hmm. um and giving the parents the skills to be able to kind of embed that in their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, and I, I mean, as you describe it, it's just sort of my brain's kind of whirring because it's almost an immersive curriculum in that sense or immersive uh, environment because they're, they're with you, I guess, almost with that kind of professional top-up and oversight and guidance. But I guess the answer to your question in kind of if people are considering what constitutes an excellent service, I think something's going to be effective. It's going to be person-centered, as you said. So, it's yeah. it's, anno it's annoying that the external vernacular for person-centered only really sort of kicks in around year nine. So I think it's a bit of a loaded thing. But with you know child-centered, you and you're considering the whole environment. And interestingly, 
Uh, well, and again, there's so many questions to answer about the service and so many things that we could kind of really zone in on, but there, there's something about, because you can only have two and a half hours a week, uh, sorry, some parents, some families only have um, uh, one session. If they're invested and want it to work, then that one session, it, it forces the wrong word, but establishes the operation, I guess, for uh making sure that it continues at home whereas uh, conversely i think if you had half a session half a half, one session per day for five days i think there'd be a tendency for parents to stop behaving in the context of how we've just described around you know essentially work, working with the, ch the mode that the child likes in terms of communication thinking about motivation of the man however that might look and so on um but then also, you know, the work that you're doing is focusing on the aspects of other things. So I imagine toilet training might be in there sometimes. You're talking yeah. about behaviours of challenge as well, which um, I think those of us who haven't worked with small children for a while, you forget, or even my kids are now, don't do this anymore, but like you forget what a full-on whirlwind looks like and how hard it is to kind of cope with. So, um, the motivations there and I, I wonder as well like do you think that plays a part from the parental point of view so given usually you're kind of like 15 months to three years old or so typically mm -hmm. do you sort of see two three-year-olds the most two three four-year-olds um probably more three and four-year-olds at the moment so so broadly if the parents mindsets not to kind of uh what's the word uh, I'll say operation, I don't really mean that, but like not, not to kind of stereotype parents, but they're in the mindset of, you know, these kids are going to high maintenance anyway. So it kind of, again, sets the occasion for this type of work to be effective. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, we, we underpin how we teach the children with behaviour analysis, but we're also underpinning what we're doing with the parents. So motivation is a key factor, and that's why we want that collaboration on the target setting. And um, we check in with them at the end of every session with how that session's gone. We check in them at them, check in with them at the beginning of the next session with how it's gone through the week. But we're also using behavior skills training during the session. So the practitioners who work with the families are um, you know, they're modeling, they are allowing opportunities for rehearsal, they are giving feedback to the parents and repeating that across a range of different situations to get the parents feeling confident and and that's going to look different how we apply it depending on the parent depending on how the parent reacts reacts in that environment as well because for some parents it's a really overwhelming environment to walk into and some are really really natural in in sliding in so we're underpinning everything with with behavior analysis but motivation for the parents is key because if they're not motivated to work on these skills they're not going to we're not there at home to to tell them to get a manned opportunity or to work on an imitation skill or to hold back or follow through with whatever it might be so we really want to get the parents motivated but also giving them the skills and knowledge to realize that you know with behaviors that challenge for example if they give in right now the behavior is going to stop and that's great that's reinforcing for them in the short term because they don't want their child to be upset but actually if we can try and get them understanding the principles of behavior and that actually the behaviors only stop because 
it's been reinforced and that means it's more likely to happen next time and actually do we need to work on teaching replacement behaviors do we need to work on skills building instead do we need to work on those antecedent manipulations and those proactive strategies but getting the parent to kind of be motivated to do that and realize kind of looking at the bigger picture rather than that immediate reinforcement right now for them mm-hmm. yeah absolutely well, it's the whole picture isn't it and, and again another another indication of why getting help early if you feel like you need it is is super important i was just looking at some of your graph data that was on the presentation that you shared um in the background mm-hmm. and you've got the most perfect kind of crab claw graph on the frequency of sign the sign mans <laughs> and it's, it's, this kind of prompted and an independent thing just kind of doing the right overlap is 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 very pretty um we might see if we can try and get that up as maybe the cover sheet for the for the um for the podcast itself just so that people can see that as a sample set i mean there's no defining information there it's just interesting to see okay so i mean we've covered an absolute ton of stuff here um obviously these kids continue to grow up and we won't sort of labor on it now we may revisit in the future perhaps but the this in maybe a second podcast perhaps but this idea that there is also a group that are getting closer to school age and there's also a group that are actually do have a diagnosis and do need help to get education healthcare plans and this is all part of the service is also offered via this mechanism of early years to, to support parents in that kind of next stage of their journey. You also have kids that go on to mainstream placements, I believe. Yeah. Um, so again, I think there's there's something about setting the cliffhanger for <laughs> maybe another one, if we can we can arrange it. For those that don't know, there's been, been a bit of a calendar drama over the last couple of months, but in any case, we made it um so i wonder whether we pick that up maybe as a shorter kind of 25 minute at some point but you know there's so much to talk about in that regard but i did want to ask you about the what are your current discussions you know given given where you are how it's it's now established and it's steady and it's happening and it's happening every week for you know the year what's your direction what are you guys talking about doing specifically for early years as you move forward I think it's it's being able to access more more families because at the moment we have families traveling one of the parents this morning that was in they would travel for two hours to get to this session every week so I think we probably have many many families traveling an hour many families two hours lots of them are local so we have lots of Bromley families which is great but actually you know should there be different hubs in different areas that local parents can access and they're not having to spend a whole day (laughs) traveling to kind of to get access to service um so that's one direction is is building building that kind of expansion across different parts of london different parts of the uk um we also um you touched on briefly but the preschool group which is more about kind of school readiness skills and building children up to that mainstream school environment if that's what is um suitable for them and then um we're looking into we've started um running a nursery as a pilot two days a week so kind of seeing how we can combine the two together as well not much to do then 
Not much to do, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. And it is worth it. I mean, if we, I know you presented something on this at our conference last year and the, the sort of overwhelming feedback about the service was, I wish that existed when we were, when our children were younger and we're talking, you know, parents now who've kind of got adult children. Adult, is that, a, that's, that's a strange phrase to say. <laughs> yeah. Adult, uh, what are they? Adult, what am I? Am I an adult child? I, I've no idea. I think you're always your parents' child, aren't you? No matter how old you get. So I guess that our children make sense. Am I just offspring now? I, I, I don't know. But okay, so I, I guess, um, I mean, I, I'm particularly interested in trying to work with yourself and, the, and, and Michelle, who's now sort of heading up the service, about this idea of longitudinal or over time kind of destination type data like you know yeah. the children that you have where they go and where they are a year later and so on whether we can set that up because what happens when the scaffolding falls away and I, anecdotally or, we have yeah. that from you know from families that keep in touch with the service and we've got just this week we had one family who wants to volunteer at the service and she came back and her son's now at mainstream school so he started with us with no communication whatsoever no um not many play skills kind of I think actually he's he's the one that we that I used as the examples of the um assessments in the presentation so you can see that he built throughout the time with the service and he actually it was the pandemic in the middle of his time but his mum went away and she taught him loads and loads of things and he came back after the pandemic talking and doing all these great play skills and social skills um but yeah she came in this week and and he's now at mainstream school in reception or year one and he's doing really well so it's nice to hear those stories anecdotally obviously it's not exactly the same for all families um and no, every family's not. got different needs I, and different yeah, and, and everyone's got yeah, and everyone's got different outcomes that are that are right and and constitute success for them, of course. But the um, yeah, I'd love to be able to take. I'd love this service to be able to represent some kind of standardised data that enables an element of statistical significance to be determined. You know, there's there's something about if you're being super cynical. And I, don't, I, I know I've said, it's frustrating for me to say this because obviously I don't think this is the case. But to be super cynical, that child you just described, they've grown up in that period of time concurrently, right? So there's a correlation okay. between age and development. And I, I've def definitely spoken to other professions about early intervention. And when I say other professions, I mean kind of educational psychologists and so forth, who would say, well, that could happen anyway. It's like, yeah, yeah but from base and so like genuinely answering that question and I'm sure you know that mum who's gone away and actually represented a massive impact of what you worked with her on in the model that you have in terms of the training and so on has taken that generalized that taken it home and actually developed or been alongside developing freely happily with their with their child as a real kind of a big thumbs up a big uh, endorsement of the service and, and the work that you've done and, and I guess the summary of that you've kind of highlighted to us around early early intervention being key empowering parents to make the best decisions teaching parents to notice what their child is trying to communicate 
teaching choice and focus on decision making early, which I think is super important. Focusing on teaching parents a generalizable set of skills. I think, you know, anecdotally, as you said, you've got that evidence as well. <clears throat> and communication and play skills as a foundation, you know, that it's big stuff that's having a big impact. And I think because it's so well articulated, you can't just say, oh, they've done that anyway. Yeah. And I think that's that's always the difficulty with our field in terms of research is you can never do um you can never do a comparison study because this child has their own set of variables, their own set of their own situation. And you can never say with this intervention, they would have done X and without this intervention, they would have done Y because you just can't break it down like that. Um, but we have a stack of evidence showing that this evidence-based programme that we are delivering and the individualization and the person-centred and working with the parent and breaking everything down and underpinning by with behaviour analysis has pro provided positive outcomes for those children and those families. But it's um, definitely a challenge if anybody's got an insight into with short in terms of literally time short bursts of data short bursts, short burst time with the data sets so six six to what maybe 18 weeks worth of data albeit that breaks down to much shorter sessions mm -hmm. is there a tool out there that would offer you or one the mechanism to then say it was definitely this that did it and then also a year later and a year later I, mean, I had a in, in a place that in a service that I ran external to beyond autism a few years ago we went we used a standardized assessment that but it was a year's worth of data is I think we had mm -hmm. times so times one times so I think we had like two or three years worth of data for, for children that were showing more than 12 months progress in 12 months so using the, the Vineland which I was inspired to do by a former colleague um, who did a similar sort of thing in a different setup in the independent sector so uh, Dr Katie Lee but the the there was enough data there for the EPS in the in the EPS service uh, educational psychology service in that borough to be able to take that away and say actually yes what you did what you did made that difference so <laughs> is it possible to do that with the, the within the parameters we've just described and if we could do that that would be really interesting as a as a reflection meanwhile case studies of the service and case study per child and family is also just as valid for those people and your service um so it's not taking away it's just i wonder what research opportunities could come from early years um to really kind of add an additional layer to the amazing work that you guys are doing yeah, no, I'm sure there's a ton of research opportunities. Um, so yeah, we'll add that to the the list of things that that we can do to develop the service. <laughs> yeah, why not? We'll create some extra time somewhere. <laughs> yeah, double double weeks somehow. Okay, so uh, I think we'll leave it there, Sarah, because we've we've covered a lot, and there's a lot of people to to think about. But broadly speaking, what you guys have done is is understand what families are I think going through experiencing you're understanding the contingencies that are at play develop a service that is 
not a financial burden for the families that use it, which again, I think yeah. is like an accessibility thing. And not only that, it highly reinforcing because you because you get so many positive changes. And on top of all of that, you've managed to assess like go through and design a, a functional assessment, i.e. something that you can use that actually shows you progress and and uh, and is not complicated. It, it's color color coded over time and it's really easy to access. Okay, great. We're just going to end with a key word, which yeah. I, I don't think you were expecting. Um, I wasn't. But we've a... been asked by our producer to do it, so I've noticed <laughs> if just <laughs> so if you could just give us a key word, that would be awesome. There are a ten of quality streets in front of me, so I'm going to say quality street. Fabulous. All right, thank you for your time, Sarah. Um, I think we're going to have to revisit this and start talking about early years, and I'm going to find out how how well you've done with all that to do list um at some point in the near future yeah it was great to speak to you andy see you soon bye bye